0: Welcome to Econ Talk, brought to you by the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University. My guest today is Michael Munger. Mike's an unusual guy. He's a professor of economics and chair of the political science department at Duke University. So he's an economist by training, but he's running a political science department. But that's not why he's unusual. I mean, that's just gravy. Uh, Mike, what I'd like to talk about today, besides. Uh, how unusual you are. That, that's you know. That'll, maybe we'll get to that. But what I'd like to talk about today are the differences between political decision making and private decision making. So in political decisions, popularity counts. Whoever has the most votes wins. What's the implication of political decisions when it's a majority rule decision like that?
1: Well, the big thing that political decisions do is uh, award power to the middle. And you know, you always hear about parties accusing their candidates of, well, you're, you're running to the center, as if that were something bad, if you believe in democracy, then you, you have to believe that there's some kind of wisdom in the people at the, the center. So imagine that we had three people, and we were trying to decide what kind of party to have. I don't mean political party, I mean what sort of uh, things to drink, and maybe dance. So uh, one person just would like to have a boombox and some uh, big 40s of uh, malt liquor. One person might like to have a DJ and buy uh, some wine and beer. And one person might like to have a band and uh, scotch and all sorts of setups. But the three of those people have agreed in advance that what they're going to do is be bound by the decision of the group. And then the question is, what would they do? And it seems like you'd need to be in the room to decide. One of the cool things about modern public choice theory is, I know, I know in advance who's going to win that. It's not magic. I just know that the middle is going to dominate that. So the person in the middle was the one who wanted to have a DJ and just beer and wine. And the point is that so long as everybody can propose what they want, the guy who wants less won't take any more than that. It'll be two to one against. And the person who wants more won't take any less than that. It'll be two, or two to one against. So there's no alternative that will beat that middle or what public choice theorists call
0: the median. So in that example, we've got... Uh, somebody who's who's the cheapskate, the sort of middle person, the extravagant person. Uh-huh. So you're saying that the middle person's proposal, and not just the middle person's. We're going to we're ruling out compromise here along friendship lines or whatever. We're yep. assuming everybody feels very strongly about these 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 expenditures that they're going to share. So the the cheapskate wants wants a low key party, the extravagant person wants a blowout party, and the middle person wants sort of this in between. So the, the the claim of modern, what you call public choice theory, which is the interface between economics and politics,
1: yeah, that's, that's where I live.
0: Right, uh, lucky you. Well, uh,
1: you, you said I run a political science department. I mostly run after it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the old herding of cats. Uh, so these these uh, these three people, if they're not going to compromise and they're only going to vote their what they really care about, you're saying that the the middle person always gets his or her way. Yep. Now ex- explain why that's true again. Well, exactly what that per- that person's perfect desire will always be what wins the election and everyone else is going to be disappointed.
1: And that's the other thing that I think we should emphasize before I go back to try to explain it we're talking about a situation where a group of people have decided in advance that one and only one solution is what we're going to do. So there's some kind of one size fits all.
0: Right. We're all going to the same party. You can't have a quiet party while I have a fancy one.
1: Right. And I can't just have a party by myself. Right. They've decided that they're going to party together. The only question is how much are they going to spend? The other thing is they've also agreed to pay one third of whatever size of a party they go with. Mm -hmm. So it's it's you're you're betting with house money here. You're – Whatever we decide, we're going to share the cost three ways.
0: Well, that sounds fair. And so in that uh, intellectually appealing uh, rule, set of rules, uh, what's the outcome?
1: Well, let's suppose that the cheapskate person says, let's do what I want. And the other two both want more than that, so they'll vote against him. And let's suppose that the person who wants the blowout party says, let's do what I want. The other two that want less will vote against him. Let's suppose that... The cheapskate person votes for the middle minus ten dollars. Well,
0: well, let's let's pick let's fix some numerical examples. So we have a we have a, let's say we have a hundred dollar party, which is the, well, let's say let's make it even cheaper, a fifty dollar party, which is the boombox.
1: I've been to parties with
0: you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's not the one I want to go to. So we've got the fifty dollar party. Which is just the cheapest one. Then uh-huh. we have a five hundred dollar party, which is the DJs, the DJ with nice beer and wine. And then we have the five thousand dollar party. So it's fifty, five hundred, and five thousand. Yep. That's the five thousand. It's got the band. It's got a bar, bartenders, hors d'oeuvres, etc. Yep. So fifty, five hundred versus and five thousand. Your your claim is that the five hundred one always wins. Will always win. Why?
1: Let's suppose that the cheapskate stung from his recent defeat at asking 50 and being turned down 2 to 1. says, okay, I know what I'll do. I'll I'll propose 490. We'll go almost up to what the 500 that the middle guy wants. Well, surprise, the guy who wants 500 prefers 500 to 490. And, of course, the guy that prefers 5,000 prefers 500 to 490. So even 490, as close as the cheapskate can get to 500, still is defeated 2 to 1. Now, let's suppose the rich guy says, well, my 5,000 got defeated, but how about if I propose 600? Well, the cheapskate likes 500 better than 600, and the middle guy, of course, likes 500 better than 600, so that one loses. The point is anything other than 500 will lose two to one to the middle or the 500 proposal.
0: I have to I have to interject, though, Mike, that the 5,000 preference might not be the rich guy. It might just be the guy who really likes to dance with, to live music and Really likes good good liquor, right? But, and wants wants to have extra manischewitz. That's exactly right. Yeah, two bottles, please. Yeah. Chill watch up. yourself. So so the middle person has, and in this story we've got three people, which is unrealistic. So when you have a um, a major population, a, a, an America voting on, we don't decide by referendum very many things at the national level, except for for uh... president, but if we think about politics generally as having the most votes is what counts, the things that get proposed that are closest to the average or middle person are the ones that are going to dominate the political landscape.
1: Yep. And so we, we, we might call the, the, what public choice theorists call that is the median. It's exactly the average. It's the median. So there's a dictator out there somewhere, and he's median Joe. He's not average Joe. He's median Joe. We may not know quite who he is, but proposals that appeal to him, and it could be median Jane. But the things that propose to meet that are, that appeal to median Joe or median Jane are the ones that dominate the political discourse
0: and of course they're not literally dictators if they decide they want something extravagant or cheap they're suddenly not in the median anymore and they, they don't get their way but yeah. the, but that middle block or, or that that cluster of uh, preferences around the middle is able to garner a majority uh, because of the uh, its ability to feed proposals on either side yeah,
1: no, nothing else can can defeat it and it might be frustrating because you might want something more you might want something a lot more do you think you have a good argument but i don't know if median joe is going to listen he might be watching survivor fredericksburg uh
0: right that's evidently a popular show <laughs> uh so yeah that's what median and joe and median Jane watch uh, it's a nice example actually because uh you would you would think that uh we'd We'd all be stuck with Survivor if TV choices were the same as political choices. So every night there'd be uh, Survivor and American Idol and nothing else. TV doesn't work that way, does it?
1: It doesn't work that way, but I have to say I'm old enough that I remember when CNN used to show news and MTV used to show music videos.
0: The good old days. Yeah, Yeah,
1: but now TV is actually coming closer to that also. Uh, You're trying to maximize market share. And a lot of – if you look at A&E or the History Channel, um, even National Geographic, a lot of this, what a lot of what they show is about aliens now because that's what a lot of Median and Joe and Median Jane want to watch. Now, well, markets do work differently from that because we don't all have to watch the same thing. And right. I think that's where you were going. The yeah, difference that is, is where I was going. We don't all have to do the same thing. And,
0: and if you look it, at – when you were going back to the good old days, I thought you were going to go back to the – see, I don't know. How, I don't think you're old enough. How old are you, Mike? I'm 48. Yeah, okay. I'm 52. So – uh, you are old enough to remember the really good old days, you know, back in the 19th century. No, I mean back in the uh, middle-ish part of the 20th century when there were three or four channels yep. uh, that you got. And, of course, the choice and variety on TV in those three or four channels was very small. There was restricted entry. Basically, you couldn't just start a TV channel. It was, uh, it was heavily regulated. And as a result, the only things that could survive in the marketplace had to be extremely popular. Yeah. But with the explosion of of cable offerings and satellite, now the potential for niche channels like the Food Network or the History Channel.
1: Or some really great dramas on HBO right, where where you can take chances.
0: Totally different. And that now – now the TV landscape more mirrors – the automobile landscape, the food landscape, the shirt landscape, the clothing landscape, the shoe landscape, much more diversity, much more variety, not the one-size-fits-all of the political marketplace. But more importantly, the choices are made differently. Talk about that.
1: Well, the way that things work in markets are there, – there are two differences. One is that every consumer gets to make his or her own choice, and so the power of the media doesn't matter as much. Also, the offerings – uh, that we get are the result of someone, maybe someone who has what seems like a really strange idea, thinking maybe I can make money by doing this, or maybe I can become famous by offering this product that's going to change people's lives. So as a result, um, we don't have to worry so much about the middle. What we have to do, what we have to worry about, is can I make revenues that exceed my costs by doing
0: this within a few years? And, of course, revenues can exceed costs in lots of ways. uh they can exceed costs because so many people buy something that's barely profitable the so called making it up on volume, or because you make a product that only a few people want, but they're willing to pay a lot for it uh, and so you can cover your costs on a small group of people because your margin's large so if, what-
1: if I'm a business person, I may be able to make money by saying, "Here's a really good idea now I'm going to issue stock." And some people say, well, that is a good idea. Now, most people still vote against. Uh, most people don't buy your stock. But if enough people buy quite a few shares of that stock, then you have enough working capital that you get your chance. So I think the big difference is that in, in the public sector, um, we've all agreed in advance we're all going to pay into this. Whatever decision is made, we have to pay. In markets, if I have an idea, only those people who agree with my bet are those who are going to commit their money, and if they win, they make money, and if they lose, they lose their own money. But they're not playing with house chips.
0: And I have to convince a different type of person. I, I love your uh, your uh, distinction there between the middle and, and sort of the, the potential fringes—the people who, who are passionately excited about an idea. So if I want to get an idea going in the in the public sector, whether it's welfare reform or subsidy to some new innovation or some regulation that that, that is uh, supposed to make the country better, whether it's a minimum wage or whatever it is, I have to convince large groups of people. And essentially, that involves convincing the middle person, whereas in the private sector, in the marketplace decision, I just have to com- convince enough people, not not a majority and certainly not the average person or the typical person or the median person, and that has some important implications for what emerges from political decision-making versus private decision-making.
1: Because in political decision-making, I'm working on what economists call the extensive margin. I have to convince a whole bunch of people. In markets, I am, I'm working on what we might call the intensive margin. That is, I have to convince them not just that it's right, but they're going to bet their own money on it. They'll actually say, yes, here's a 1000 here's 10000 here's $20,000 of mine. And so as a result... Markets in those circumstances have a pretty good uh, track record for innovations or changes or new ideas that might change a lot of our lives. People have a real reason to try to investigate and say,
0: is this going to work or not? And yet most of those ideas aren't good. Most of, a lot of new ideas, new products fail. So why do you say that markets work well? Rhetorical question. Go ahead. Sure, and I think there's, there's, there's,
1: two, ways, there's two ways of thinking about this. Um, let's, let's think about the, the, the wizard that we all admire, the conventional wisdom. The reason the conventional wisdom is conventional is that it's usually right. So we've got Joe Median sitting on his couch saying, well, I don't think that's going to work. The problem is he says that about everything. He always thinks things aren't going to work, and most things don't. Most new ideas are just terrible.
0: Right. Having that skepticism is, is a good rule of thumb.
1: In the sense that it classifies most things correctly. But there's one time that it's always wrong. And that is a good new idea. Mm-hmm. The conventional wisdom never recognizes good new ideas; it usually recognizes bad new ideas. So the question is, how can we come up with a system that punishes bad new ideas and rewards good new ideas without putting all of us at risk? And that's what markets do.
0: Tell us how. Give me give me give me an example.
1: Well, I saw an invention the other day. Um, the uh, it was it was designed to keep your dog or cat uh happy if you had to leave for a week or so and it was an automatic pet petter. They called it the petaway. And it I think it cost a thousand dollars and your dog or cat would sidle up to it and this plastic hand would come out and pet the back of the dog or cat and say, good doggy or good cat and you could record your own voice for this. Um it turns out that it didn't sell very well and it disappeared almost immediately.
0: Is this a real product, Microsoft? I'm not, I'm not making, making it, it up. Google it. Google it, pumpkin. <laughs> <laughs> You'll pet find it. Away. Pet away. Yes, away. Yes, sir. It, it, it's a repulsive concept. I can see why it would struggle to make it in the park marketplace.
1: A lot of repulsive things don't struggle, though. I've, I've Pet, <laughs> no pet rocks. Not pet away, but <laughs> yeah. pet rocks made a lot of money. Yep. So I don't get to decide. You don't get to decide. Somebody makes a bet with their own money, and if people like it, they win. If they don't, they're the ones who pay all the costs.
0: But your general point is that, is that if we put new products up to a political decision, a national referendum, because of the skepticism of the average person, which is a good general rule of thumb... It is, it is correct on average. It, a lot of good new ideas all and the- bad new ideas would be rejected. Yep, all,
1: all good new ideas would be rejected is the
0: problem. And as a result, uh, putting those decisions in the political marketplace basically empowers the average person, whereas in the private marketplace... Uh, the power is in the hands of the risk taker, who often overestimates. Yeah, usually. The, the, often overestimates the, the likelihood of success, because most of them fail, but not all of them do. And I, but I want to come back come back to, to your claim that that the that the median person is skeptical. Uh, don't aren't there some ideas that that surely are so obviously great that that people are going to recognize them, and if they were decided politically, we'd all get behind them.
1: I wish that were true. Uh, There's, some, I think, some bad ideas about regulatory policy and education that the median person believes that are just false. But there are some products that we now all take for granted that, at first, the median person would have rejected. Can I tell you a story about two Steves? Sure. Well, some of you may know this story, and you may recognize it before I go too long, but in the late 70s, there were two Steves that were working in a garage in California, and one of those Steves worked for Hewlett-Packard, and the other one worked for Atari and they had an idea that they could build a box attached to a TV screen and that people would be able to use that in their home for recipes, maybe for communication, drawing things, uh, watching movies.
0: It's a stupid idea really, it, isn't it? It, it? A box that you – I mean where, you already have a TV. Why would you want another – And I, one of the things you might do with this thing is, is I guess type up documents, but you've already got a typewriter. I mean, Why, why would you want this thing?
1: None of it makes any sense. And had I seen one, in fact, I think I remember in the late seventies or early eighties when the Apple One first came out because these Steves were named Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, when one of these apple ones came out i I thought it was it was a terrible idea they they priced they priced the these were personal computers, the first personal computers they priced them at an odd pricing point. Six hundred sixty-six dollars and sixty-six cents. So what year
0: was what year was that roughly? That
1: was nineteen seventy-six, right at the end of seventy-six.
0: Six hundred and sixty-six dollars and sixty-six cents. It's (laughs) catchy. It's
1: it's it's a satanic pricing point. They were trying to get attention. But the the more important thing is, you put that in in current dollars. That's two thousand four hundred. $2,400. $2,400. Well,
0: that's what a computer costs today, roughly, isn't it?
1: it? It's what a paperweight cost then, because this computer had no memory, no fixed memory, and 16K of RAM. 16K. So your, your, your cell phone K. is about 10 times as powerful.
0: I'm unbelievable.
1: And yet, they wanted 2400 bucks for it.
0: They didn't sell like hotcakes.
1: They didn't sell very much, but these two Steve's were too stupid to realize that they had no chance and that this was a bad product. So they started offering Apple II's and Apple III's, and the Apple III, I think, is a landmark of optimism. In two thousand six dollars, I think it came out in eighty one. It cost nine thousand dollars. They wanted nine thousand dollars. Now, some it did have a little bit of fixed memory, and you could use disks in it. And you, they, they had a mouse. They had these were the first mouse, mouses, I guess. Maybe mice.
0: I think it's mice. Yeah, but not really. It's probably mouses. Yeah.
1: But, and so th- this is crazy. A $9,000 computer, it still wasn't as powerful as your cell phone, and these two nuts, clearly doomed to fail, had a public stock offering in 1980. And a bunch of other nuts, although not that many, bought 4.6 million shares. So that would lead me to think wait, maybe the median person isn't so dumb after all, because a fair number That's of, a lot people. of shares. Yeah, but it's only 4.6 million shares, and even if. People only bought one share, and they didn't. That still meant that 97% of the U.S. population either thought it was, it was a bad gamble. Terrible. I'm not going to bet on this. And I wouldn't have. Heck, I was alive. I didn't. Yep.
0: I, I, I was that. trading
1: in stock at that point. There's no way I would have bought stock in Apple. What a stupid thing. I, I bet you're glad you didn't buy any. Oh, too. of
0: course. Although I did, have, I did buy an Apple Classic. Uh, early on, I think it was 1984
1: 85. I, I wouldn't have picked you for an Apple guy. It is,
0: and it is a paperweight. It's sitting in my basement, uh, cheerfully um, resting and on its laurels. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the,
1: people... it could, that
0: that that computer could hold, I think, an eight or a sixteen-page paper uh-huh. so, per file. So if you wanted to write a, a thirty-page paper, you'd write the first half, save it as a file. And then you'd open another file for the second half.
1: Actually, I think rewards to brevity like that would help a lot of my <laughs> students.
0: Yeah, that, that was a lost opportunity. We should have regulated that. We yeah. should have said that's that's a good rule for for the future and, and and mandated it.
1: You live close enough to D.C. I bet you can get that in a bill.
0: <laughs> Definitely. So so that so that idea, which was a stupid quote, stupid idea, turned out. Well, not to be quite so stupid, Everybody, the personal computer. Yeah,
1: basically, everybody thought it was a bad idea, and it wasn't just Meadie and Joe that thought it was a bad idea. You could find a lot of quotes from people as late as 1977 or the mid-'80s that said that I, there's the, the, the president of uh, DEC, Digital Electric Corporation, this is the guy that made computers.
0: It's a powerhouse company of its day, actually. It's kind <coughs> of interesting. It's a fascinating thing that… That it's gone, it, but it, it was it, a huge, its highly time, capitalized co- company. It was a dominant company with tremendous innovation. Yeah. It, was, it was a very successful company.
1: Their reaction to this was: "There's no reason anyone would want a computer in their home." That was the uh, that's Ken Olson, the the president and the founder. So a guy with some vision. And the cool thing is, he's absolutely right in every unimportant way. For years and years, nobody did want a computer. Ninety-five percent of the American population, for years and years, voted no. No, nope, we're
0: not going to have one of those. And the cool thing is, is that all of us who voted no, we did, we weren't held to that. Nope. We right, got we got to enjoy. Minds. Right, we get to enjoy it now. I think free riding
1: is one of my favorite activities.
0: Yeah, you don't get to do it that often, but when you do, it's sweet. Yeah. And so,
1: yeah, now I, we can't imagine doing without personal computers. But if we'd done it by voting, if we tried to say we're going to appeal to the to the middle, we're going to appeal to to Media and Joe. What do you think about this? Well, to no, subsidize we it. Say. Well, it, suppose that for national. Subsidizing was the only way that you could invest. That was the only way you could finance innovation. It wouldn't have happened.
0: Well, let's talk about that. You know, in, in, when communism was a, um, a going concern, it's, I guess it sort of is. It's on its, um, it's, on its last legs, it appears.
1: Outside with, of American English Department.
0: Yeah, it's still very popular there. Uh, uh, there it still has um, – if you've never lived under communism for some reason, it, it, I guess it's a lack of, an, of imagination.
1: They're very empathic though.
0: Yes, they are. I mean, I find it fascinating that um, that when Elian Gonzalez was uh, forced to return to Cuba, so many people thought that was a blessing uh, that he would be raised in a allegedly non-materialistic society. You know, actually a society that's desperately poor, and I, I suspect quite materialistic as a result of that poverty. Well, but you but, don't
1: have the burden of all that property. Yeah.
0: Well, it's yeah, it's certainly uh, an easy life. But strange you the know, people who are passionate about that. None of them are, are emigrating to Cuba. Uh, it's, most of the traffic seems to run the other way. People who who want to live under uh, materialism rather than the allegedly more beneficial uh, communist society. Yeah, so not, not
1: many people now would advocate a system where we only used government funds for innovation. But but, but still, that, go ahead. Sorry. Well, but still, a, a lot of a lot of people say we need to increase government funding for research. We need to increase government funding for. Um, Regulatory policies, where we look at uh, what processes, uh, chemical or otherwise, would better serve or drugs.
0: Right. Well, in the in the eighties and nineties, there was a lot of uh, among elite opinion. The, those some of those university departments, uh, not, not so much the the average person, but the among elite opinion, we were encouraged to emulate. Japan, and this was even a business schools.
1: Yeah, so this this wasn't an English department. This nope. was in business schools,
0: but it was in universities. So it was similar. It was a small fringe of intellectually who <laughs> never worked for a living. Yeah, people who never worked for a living and thought too much of intellectuals. I think, as as uh, Hayek has pointed out. But but what they advocated was a closer. Uh, alliance or uh, cooperation between government and business so that the right products would get invented like they are in japan say uh... tell us a little bit about japan
1: well the the interesting thing about japan was that the um, the japanese ministry of international trade and industry at the in the seventies and eighties had the reputation as really being able to pick winners and a lot of the explanation people thought for the japanese miracle the huge expansion in exports from japan um, and new products, good products, was that the, was the guidance of what Japan called an industrial policy, so the debate in the United States was, should we have something like an industrial policy but I think it that that story, which is a fable doesn 't really bear scrutiny so i I have one more little story about a guy named soichiro, and um what japan what Miti had done, what the Japanese government had done, and this was really Japan is a market economy and a democracy so it 's not that they 're a communist country at all it 's just that they wanted to use median joe to try to decide what would be best for
0: the entire country. Not literally. They w- they didn't put up these decisions to a national referendum, but they used the political process which does empower median and joe.
1: And it would have been possible for somebody to run against it if anybody thought it was a bad idea. So the the Japanese public was fully behind this. They thought it was an excellent idea. And what, what MITI had decided to do was that they needed to streamline. They needed to make competition a little bit simpler. And they wanted to have their automobile companies be able to realize the economies of scale in production. You know, things get cheaper as you produce more of them. And so this idea of economies of scale came to dominate their thinking. They thought we need fewer automobile companies and have them produce more, and that'll make us more competitive on world markets.
0: Such a seductive idea, isn't it? It, it,
1: makes, it makes perfect sense in every unimportant way. Yeah. And so they picked two. They picked Toyota and Nissan. And th- that would get all of the financial support that the Japanese government was going to give. And the other companies were told that you, know, you could do something else. You can make motorcycles or blenders or those television things. Uh, so you guys run and play, and we're going to let the grown-ups, the big companies. They're the ones that really know the most about making cars. But there was this this one guy, Soichiro. And people that knew him uh, will describe him as he was a prickly guy. He was a difficult person. He was terrible politically. And so it's unusual for a Japanese businessman. He didn't spend a lot of time drinking sake and playing golf. He he didn't really like people. He was a misanthrope. But he had a vision. He had a vision particularly of high-performance, high-revving engines. And he made motorcycles. His company made motorcycles. And they they had won races all over the world, and he thought this would really work well for a car. It would get high mileage, it would be high performance, very lightweight and small. And when he heard this from Miti, that you're not going to be allowed to do it, he fought the decision and actually managed to get uh, Miti to agree that he wouldn't have to stop producing cars, but he just wouldn't get any public funding. And they assumed that that meant that he would immediately go belly up. Well, so Ichiro's last name is Honda, and you've probably heard of him. Nineteen fifty nine they introduced their first automobile, the S three sixty, which was a, a sports car, an open top sports car. And it, it wasn't great. It sold pretty well, but it sold really well in Europe and the United States. It was it, it and the reason was it was extremely cheap and the performance was remarkable. It it performed almost like a race car. Now, when you think of a Honda now, you actually think probably of Median and Joe. So here's, here we are free riding again, a car that a lot of people would have thought that won't work because they, they don't have government funding and they don't have these huge economies of scale. They, as you produce more, it gets cheaper. Um, Honda now is a very standard car for people all over the world. It's one of the largest sellers. And had the government of Japan had its way, Honda wouldn't exist
0: so the vaunted uh vaunted cooperation between uh government and industry maybe isn't quite as romantic as as we're as we're told no the, mr
1: honda in fact hated the government and fought them every chance that he that he got and as a result that was why he
0: succeeded now mm-hmm. most people aren't as enamored of japan as they once were uh you know the, all those folks i always find it fascinating and all the people who told us we should imitate japan and and um have more government business cooperation, which I think is just a remarkably bad idea. I mean, it's hard to imagine a, a worse idea uh, of
1: yeah, – I don't, I don't think we should have the Department of Motor Vehicles in charge of motor vehicles.
0: Yeah, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Uh, it could be a bumper sticker there. <laughs> um, and those on the other side could have the bumper sticker, let the Department of Motor Vehicles be in charge of motor vehicles. Yeah. That's, that's a slogan everyone would rally behind. If,
1: if, if that's the opinion – if that's really what they want <laughs> –
0: But you don't – it's interesting. I was just going to say that it's strange to me that the people who told us how great Japan was and um, how we ought to imitate them, they're quieter now. Uh, You don't get a lot of mea culpas out of of those folks. They don't uh, concede publicly that they they made a horrible set of policy recommendations now that – even though it's obvious now that it's a horrible set of recommendations.
1: Russ, I, I think you're being unfair, and here's the reason. Markets themselves and market processes are an innovation that's hard for the average person to understand it's hard to to understand the fact that individual people acting in all these different contradictory ways add up to something that benefits us all. It it doesn't make sense unless you've thought about it quite a bit. The public education in economics in the United States, I think, is pretty deficient. So it's it's easy enough to blame people, but I actually think they're not convinced. They still think that government planning and a kind of one-size-fits-all solution to everything, even regulatory policy, is the way to go.
0: Well, I want to come back to that, but I want want to stick with this point about what's attractive in today's political world. So there aren't a lot of people outside those English departments who think we ought to have a command and control economy, a top-down communist uh, state. There aren't a lot of people now who think that we ought to have uh, a government consortium with Detroit, say, because they understand that the incentives there are going to get messed up. I think people have either, because of that theoretical understanding about incentives or because Japan has uh, been uh, struggling for now about 10, 15, 10 years or so of mediocre economic performance, the the, the, the the glow is, is off there. Um, people aren't as excited about that. But you still see lots of enthusiasm for one-size-fits-all government-mandated solutions. Give me some examples of that.
1: Well, I think in the United States, we don't think enough about the fact that there's a boundary line between what's mine as an individual and what's ours as a group. And so if we think we have a problem, the first solution we have is to ask ourselves, what are we going to do? I think the first question you ought to ask yourself is, why do you think there's a we? Why do you think that a one-size-fits-all solution is the right answer to begin with? And I guess I can think of a number of examples that may seem a little jarring to someone who hasn't thought much about markets. So, um, well, imagine that instead of having a policy, one of the things I think that's going to come down the, the pike pretty soon is some sort of uniform standard, a national standard for ethanol. So we want to have less dependence on foreign oil.
0: Well, we've got a standard now, right? There is a minimum amount. Every gallon of gas sold in the United States, I think, has ethanol in it, doesn't it?
1: I don't know if if it's at the gallon level or at the company level, but there has to be a certain amount. But it's going to be more.
0: There's there's a push for more because it's supposedly going to reduce our dependence on foreign oil and save energy because it's so efficient.
1: Why not do this? Why not have a pump? where one of the buttons that I can choose is the mix that I want between ethanol and gasoline. Why why do we need a standard at all? And if I don't want any, that's okay. If I want all ethanol, that's okay.
0: Well, I think the claim would be – I don't think this is really what's driving our ethanol policy. I want to come back to that. But I think the claim would be, well, you might selfishly choose uh, no ethanol, let's say, because it's cheaper. But you'd be ignoring the externalities, the harm you're you're causing others when you choose all uh, refined – oil, petroleum, and, and buying, quote, regular gasoline and that's ethanol-free, you would be ignoring the pollution you'd be causing and the uh, dependence on uh, unstable foreign regimes that might subsidize terrorism and the instability in the Middle East. So what ethanol does by forcing a national standard on people, we force them to take account of the consequences of that decision. That seems like a nice idea.
1: If those things were, well, if, if we're not all persuaded to the same extent of the correctness of those things. So suppose that a lot of us believe the argument that you just made. We're welcome to buy ethanol. Having a one-size-fits-all solution means that even those of us that aren't convinced have to do the same thing. So I guess I would say the answer would be if you think that the problem is ethanol's too expensive, um, let's put a tax, a, a larger tax on gasoline. And then just let people choose their own mix, not have a, a one-size-fits-all requirement.
0: Now that's a great example. Uh, I can't help but bring up that when uh, the catalytic converter was uh, uh, required of all gasoline uh, – of all cars, all cars are required to put a catalytic converter on. Yeah. And – the goal is a very good goal, clean air. Uh, the idea would be just the one we've been talking about, that if you had to pay for a catalytic converter, you'd always have a temptation to avoid the cost and let other people breathe the dirty air. You'd be breathing it too, but your contribution would be so small that you'd rationalize it and say, I'm not going to pay for that. I'll let other people pay for it, and then no one would buy it. The air would get dirty. So the argument was we have to require a catalytic converter. It's an interesting argument. It's a good argument on the face of it. Of course, at the time, it turned out there was a car. It actually turns out to be a Honda that met the clean air standards of the time without a catalytic converter. But Washington required Honda to buy the catalytic converter as well, even though their engine was clean. Uh I'm sure it had nothing to to do with the fact that American car company, I think it was GM, but I'm not sure. It could have been Ford. I think it was GM, had the patent on the catalytic converter. Uh And so this was just a political payoff to a special interest. So here's an interesting case. This is a a subtler version than what we've been talking about, the average person thought, yeah, clean air, that's a good idea, and we should force people to do that because on their own, they might make the wrong choice. They were convinced of that logic, just like the case of, in theory, for ethanol. I don't even know if it's true for ethanol, but Uh in theory, it's reasonable for the average person to feel that way. What they forgot was that the actual implementation of that took a different form, which wasn't in the case of the catalytic converter, let's require all cars to meet a certain standard, which would have been fine yeah. as a justification, justified we by. could have
1: measured it. Every year when you get right. car inspected, it has to meet the emission standard. Right.
0: But instead, they said every car had, had a catalytic converter. The point, the case of ethanol is exactly depressingly analogous, which is if if we really are convinced that ethanol is good for America then let's level the playing field between ethanol and non-ethanol gasoline with a tax on regular gasoline and let people choose then whether they think ethanol is good for their car, but that's not the way it goes.
1: If if, if they're right, their car will work well. If they're wrong, their car will blow up after 100,000
0: miles. And, and of course, I think the other issue is whether it really saves energy or pollution because you've got to produce the ethanol, which requires energy. Yeah, petroleum-based fertilizers. And, of course, you've got to – it's not clear if it can't compete in the marketplace – it, there is an issue about the pollution. I, w- I want to put that to the side, but on this pure issue of whether it saves energy, that's you don't need a government regulation to to impose ethanol. It should be able to compete and do just fine. Yeah, I,
1: I, I may not care about pollution, but I'd like to save energy. It saves me
0: money. Yes, it does, and and we have a natural uh, personal incentive to do that. There's a related issue of of what of alternative technologies uh, for driving cars. You know, this this fashionable idea that we should subsidize hydrogen cars to reduce our energy dependence. Is that a good idea?
1: I think it's unlikely that the government is going to be able to pick out the particular technology that is going to work best, just like for personal computers. So subsidizing hydrogen fuel cell cars, um, to the exclusion of other things, is not likely to get us the the best result. I mean, maybe we could have some sorts of subsidies at the basic research level, but I, I would rather have two mics working in a garage somewhere, trying to develop a new technology that they can make money from.
0: Yeah, that runs on, say, turkey carcasses, which I think is actually I a wasn't going to tell that. I think it's a substance. I hate to give it away. I, think... I haven't patented it yet. <laughs> but I, I, there, there is, I've seen it. I just don't know whether it was a hoax. I've seen it in a real magazine, I think, I'm not sure which one, that, that you can actually uh, produce energy using uh, turkey carcasses. You know,
1: Russ, some people wouldn't believe you. I do, but some people would Thank you. Well,
0: that's another thing to Google uh google turkey carcass car and and if you don't find it yeah. uh it's because you probably misspelled carcass I no think. but i think it's true and it, if it, maybe we'll put a link up at the uh at econtalk.org, uh <laughs> if i if i can uh i'll google it myself and spell it correctly i want to come back to something you you said that I, I hadn't thought about that i think is extremely interesting and um i've got my own it, it spurred a thought of mine i, I want to let you, you talk about it first though you said something really strange you said the average person, who's busy with survivor and paying the mortgage and making sure um, the kids are clothed and fed and all those things that distract us from deep uh, philosophical thoughts, the average person is skeptical of new good ideas like the computer or a new kind of car or iron free, you know, wrinkle free shirts. Uh, whatever that new idea is, trivial or, or sublime. Uh, but the average person is often entranced by bad new ideas. There's an asymmetry. Actually, the, the bad new idea that came to mind when when you said that was light rail. Uh-huh. Light rail is, a, I think, a really horrible idea. It's unbelievably expensive. I can't
1: believe you're being like that. I would like to have cheap mass transit.
0: That would that's, please me. That's because you're a median kind of guy. I'm out <laughs> on the fringe with my Apple computer, and, I, and I'm a big Honda owner, too, uh-huh. by the way. Uh-huh. Long-time Honda driver. Um, but you know, light rail, uh, a living wage, uh, a law against smoking, these are things that appeal to folks sometimes because I think they think that they will achieve what they're supposed to achieve when, in fact, they don't. Or sometimes because they think they'll achieve what they do, and they do achieve that, but it's still not a good idea. But let's take the ideas that they think are good. They think that they'll achieve what they're supposed to do, but they actually don't. So they sound good on paper, but like many private ideas we've talked about, they don't work very well, and yet they often persist. Why are these ideas like light rail – and I'll pick the living wage as another example – Why does the average person find them so attractive when they don't find the new private idea like a computer or some new product innovation attractive at first?
1: Well, uh, Friedrich Bastiat said the, the state is designed to allow each of us to live at the expense of others. All of us like the idea of getting something for nothing but we hate to take it from other people but so long as it's provided by the state it seems like an excellent idea so living wage we should we should mandate that people have enough money to live on that that makes a lot of sense
0: and have it be paid for by well
1: the state we should have the state pay for it
0: yeah.
1: I, the, let me give a simple example that i think would surprise most people and the reason i want to do it is that it's so simple airbags How could you possibly complain about airbags?
0: Mandated airbags. Mandated airbags. Not privately offered airbags. Of course it should
1: be mandated. You know those automobile companies are. They're not going to do it unless we make them. So what we're going to do is put airbags in the steering column of every car, and that'll make everybody safer. I want to propose an alternative. I want to have Tulloch airbags, Gordon Hmm. Tulloch airbags, instead of the standard ones. And Gordon Tulloch airbags are a 10-inch ice pick. So I'm driving along. And I hit something, and I jam my body into the steering column, and a ten-inch ice pick comes out of the steering column and goes through my body.
0: This is uh, my colleague Gordon Tullock uh, here at George Mason, who is um, has perhaps the advantage of uh, not having formal training in economics, and has therefore made some incredibly interesting and provocative contributions to. I, I think he economics. was kidding.
1: I think he was kidding when he proposed this. With Gordon, it's hard
0: to tell. It is hard to tell. but, well, it, so but it's a, but it's an important. It sounds like a joke, but it's not. it has a non-whimsical um, side to it. What
1: would, what would the effect be on safety? Well, I would drive really carefully. In fact, suppose you live in Washington and you're driving on 66, you're trying to get home, and traffic is packed, and there's those guys driving by you on the shoulder. I love that. With the with the Tulloch airbag, they probably wouldn't do that because no. if somebody just barely pulled out and they nicked them, they'd have an ice pick through them. Yep. Accidents would go down dramatically. There'd be a huge increase in safety. Uh, It's not at all obvious that making cars safer doesn't have a discounting response in behavior because people say, well, my car's safer. I don't have to behave so safely. People are going to choose their own level of risk. So mandating that all cars have to be safer enables risk-taking behavior that may endanger all of us. Well,
0: that's that's an argument where basically people have... Difficulty understanding the unintended consequences of a public decision like that, right?
1: I think willfully that, but, that they, they would like to think airbags make sense. Let's all do it. And if someone is more risky because of it, well, that's oh that's wrong. That would be immoral.
0: Right, and so we'll ignore that possibility, even though there's there is evidence that that's exactly what is happening. There's actual empirical evidence. As cars I, have gotten safer, people do drive more recklessly. Yeah,
1: I actually have several colleagues I'd like to put a TELIC airbag in their car. Uh, <laughs> so that's
0: they, a different question, though. I'm sorry. So they, uh, I'll assume that's just so they drive more safely. That, I, very, I'm worried about their safety. Yeah, you're, you're always always looking out for others. I appreciate that, Mike. It's it's. Uh, Part of the reason I think we're we're such good friends, um, but I want to I want to raise a different possibility because I want to go to that light rail story. I want to stick with that or the or the living wage story. Um, in the case of the light rail, the living wage, besides this sort of general idea that we're quote doing good with public funds, although in the case of living wage, it's not exactly public funds, a public mandate, it's going to be funded by consumers by consumers ultimately of the products that are now going to get more expensive because of mandated wage increases. But but what's going to happen in this case is that uh, there's a there's going to be a a coalition of two groups, the people who are naive about the impact, that is the so-called do-gooders, which include most of us, right? We all a lot of us want the world to be a better place. give me so, the
1: opportunity to do good, sure I'd like to do it.
0: Me too. So the light rail's good because well that's going to that's going to reduce pollution. Light rail, uh, public transportation, uh, trains or trolleys, they're going to have uh, lots of people on them and they won't be in their cars. And reduce
1: congestion and it's pollution. going to reduce
0: congestion, and pollution. So, on the surface, it seems like a good idea. Now, one problem with the idea is the unintended consequences, as you point out, uh, and, and just the general measurement problem that, well, maybe it won't work out as, as we think. Maybe. It won't reduce congestion because it won't be too very popular. Maybe it will turn out to be a lot more expensive than we thought. Maybe more people will move into the city as a result of this, and that will create more pollution elsewhere and congestion in other streets, et cetera. So there are all these – the complexities of this are obvious, uh, and it's also obvious that when you're not spending your own money in contrast to Mr. Honda, who we talked about earlier – Your incentive to discover whether these claims are true is much smaller. So public decisions are going to find it easier to make mistakes along those lines because the the incentive for you to acquire the necessary information to make an informed decision is going to be very small. You're going to be spending that time on Survivor, the mortgage, your kids, your spouse, and as a result, oh, it sounds good. I'm for it. There's that other part, though, that's really nasty which is the special interest, the manufacturer of the rail cars in the light rail thing is going to be out there. And this is a part of a theory that uh, I've heard Milton Friedman talk about, Bruce Yandel. At at Clemson has spoken about it. It's it's the bootleggers and Baptists. It's the self-interested people who who want to ban liquor on Sunday because they want to sell – their illegal uh, still produced alcohol, and they ally with the high minded moral Baptists who are against drinking because it 's the work of the devil so you 've got these environmentalists who say well this this light rail thing 's going to be great because it 's going to reduce pollution, and then you have at the same time the not so attractive group of folks, the manufacturers of the light rail, who have a vested interest, and the problem is is that those those light rail manufacturers are going to encourage media coverage and studies that's going to get to average Joe and Jane and make them think, "Yeah, this is going to be great." When in fact, seven people ride it even at the peak.
1: Yeah, the the, the benefits are so concentrated that it's easy for those groups to organize that are for, and the costs are diffuse and unknown and hard to discover, and
0: so the rest of us just go along. So what's a body to do? What's what what can we do about this, Mike? Any um any optimism here? Well, I always like to end on an optimistic note. On
1: the on the living wage question, um, it's becoming less and less implausible, um in a lot of people's minds. The big beneficiaries I think would be organized labor, and the people that would lose is probably those people who now have minimum wage jobs because if you raise the living wage to fourteen, eighteen dollars, whatever number of people have picked, that's the new hourly wage, um, you'd have job gentrification. So people Meaning? Well, gentrification in a neighborhood is as property values start to go up outside people who are wealthier buy the property and people who've lived there for a long time get pushed out If you have janitorial jobs for eighteen dollars an hour, then someone with marginal job skills, someone who may not always show up on time and aren't you're not as good at working at that job as someone who would be willing to work at that job for eighteen dollars an hour um those jobs will be gentrified. The, 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 the poor people that used to work in them will be gone. They'll be unemployed. And either organized labor will benefit or the people who can move from other jobs to those newly attractive janitorial jobs. I guess I have a hard time being very optimistic about this, even if we'd like to end on an optimistic note. The problem of concentrated benefits and diffuse costs and the fact that we tend to opt for one-size-fits-all Government solutions, instead of those hard to understand and unpredictable market solutions, it is probably with us to stay.
0: Uh, no doubt, I, but I do think there's some grounds. For, l- let me add some optimism, and you can react. Well, it's to I'm
1: pretty bad if you're the optimistic guy.
0: Well, I'm an optimist at heart. I, I, I'm a uh, I'm an optimistic uh, cynic. I, I don't I don't think that's a. It sounds like an oxymoron, but um, I, I understand this this political problem where, that we've been talking about. Uh, this whole time, which is the political process tends to focus on the average person. And when you add in the special interests on top of that, the average person is going to have uh, – there's a temptation for the special interest to deceive and dissuade and uh, manipulate the average person, which leads to political outcomes that are pretty – can be pretty gruesome. Um or even without I'm the, for
1: the optimistic part without right?
0: the special interest the average person's not well informed and as a result often advocates things that are bad ideas so th- I th- for me the optimism comes in a couple places one is people do learn about really bad political ideas so even though there's a romance about socialism and communism uh, it's pretty much off the political table in the united states what's can consi- let me be, say that more clearly it's off the table uh, very few serious people advocate uh, the communist model. And I think that's for a simple reason. The appeal of it is still there, which is we're all sharing. It's not motivated by greed. Uh, we all decide for each other. It's a beautiful thing, except we saw it in practice. It didn't work very well. You know, Millions of people were killed as a result. And there are people who then respond and say, yeah, but it's never really been tried. But even that argument just doesn't carry the weight it used to carry. It's just dead. And I think um, price controls are dead in the United States of the direct kind. We still have a lot of indirect price controls. We talked about this in a previous podcast with Milton Friedman. But price controls are dead mainly due to experience. Anybody who was alive in the 70s who knew anything about life saw that price controls on gasoline in the 70s led to lines. Uh, violence in those lines, unbelievably unpleasant experiences trying to plan something because you didn't know whether you could get gas or not. And so even though we had gas go up to $3 and more a gallon in the last few months, there wasn't a demand for price – There was a, some people demanded it. Yeah, there were calls for there it. There were calls for it. Some politicians grandstanded about it, but it didn't happen. It didn't have enough political traction, and I think it didn't because even though the average person doesn't, can't draw the graph that I get my students to understand about price controls, didn't matter the average person just had a skepticism about it so i think the living wage is a good example i think the idea of the living wage is is very appealing to people but a very short amount of logic like the the logic that you just provided and some experience can dissuade people from it. And Mayor Daley in Chicago just stood up to the city council and vetoed a, a living wage ordinance in, in Chicago that was going to apply to big box retailers. I don't think he did that because he's a principled person who believes in markets. We have lots of evidence to the contrary or that he believes in economic freedom. He did it because I thought – think, I think he believed that the average person in Chicago understood it was a bad idea even though it was ro- there was some romance behind it. So there's some – I think we make some progress.
1: Well, I, I, I hope you're right, and I, I have to say that uh, activities like this podcast that uh, Liberty Fund is doing, I hope, contributes to that kind of economic education.
0: Uh, that's a lovely thought. Uh, let's close there. My guest today has been Mike Munger of Duke University. For more Econ talk, go to econtalk.org, econtalk.org, where you can comment on this podcast and find links and readings related to today's topic. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University. Thanks for listening.